Welcome to AXA Investment Managers CPD, Bulls, Bears and Investment Podcast Series for Investment Professionals. It should not be relied upon by retail clients. This podcast does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any AXA Investment Managers group of companies, products or service and should not be regarded as a solicitation, invitation or recommendation to enter into any investment transaction or any other form of planning. It is provided to you for information purposes only. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. The value of your investments can go down as well as up and you may not get back the full amount invested. Hello and welcome to AXA Investment Manager's CPD Bulls, Bears and Investment Podcast. I'm Hardeep Tawakli and coming up in today's programme, we're going to try and make bonds easy and uncomplicated. Bonds today are quite simply a much better understood asset class. Investors understand the notion that not all bonds are equal and they don't all carry the same risk. So as we look to this year's potential end of a 35-year run in the bond bull market, investors now realise that fixed income doesn't necessarily mean you will lose money. In fact, it's all about how you are positioned. We will also be hearing from Senior Credit Portfolio Manager Nicholas Trindad on why markets are so poor at forecasting when interest rates are going to go up and how he is approaching portfolio diversification. Historically, markets have been very poor at forecasting uh, when interest rates are going to go up and they got it wrong for quite a long time with the US and with the Fed because for a long time, you know, the market thought that the Fed would increase rates and it kept on not happening or not happening until it actually happened. Before that, we're going to go back to the basics. Now, for many investors, old and new, bonds are not the easiest asset class to decipher. From misunderstandings about duration and yield to the role fixed income plays in a portfolio, every year numerous surveys in the industry highlight the many misconceptions that influence and plague investors and show just how confused they remain by bonds. Let's take one of the fundamental features of bonds, the fact that when interest rates rise, bond prices tend to fall. This very notion makes approaching bonds in a market like today, where we are seemingly at the end of this prolonged period of low interest rates and the beginning of quantitative tightening, it makes it all confusing. And with interest rates on the up after so many years of them remaining at historic lows, it isn't surprising that some investors are wary of the fact that the environment for generating bond returns is a lot tougher. Questions are being asked about the types of bond funds that can still outperform in the current market climate, and if they're even required in a portfolio today. Many would say, in spite of the media often referring to a bear market in bonds, this asset class does, even in that rising rate environment, have a huge role to play in building a diversified portfolio. So I'm here with my co-presenter, Nick Lawrence, who's going to help me simplify this slightly. So Nick, in an effort to explain why bonds are so important in the portfolio allocation process, I think we need to go back to the beginning. So let's explain to the listeners very briefly, what's a bond? Yes, hi Hardy. Well, I agree that bonds tend to be an asset class that can be confusing. To some, they represent only a safe haven or a low-yielding type of investment, but not all bonds represent safety, and there are many types of bonds that can provide a steady or high yield in all sorts of interest rate environments as well. So first of all, a bond is quite simply a debt instrument issued by governments, corporates and other entities in order to finance projects. If you imagine you are a corporate or an entity, you can issue a bond to generate money for an acquisition, for example, or as a government you can issue bonds or debt to generate money to fund a specific project. That bond is a so-called promise to pay. For example, if a government issues a five-year bond with a face value of £1,000, an interest rate or coupon of 5% 
this bond will pay the investor £50 a year for five years. That's why bonds are often seen as an asset class that is relatively safe and low risk, because they're designed to offer a steady stream of income. But having said they're safe, I think it's fair to say that every investment carries some risk. With bonds, that risk is that the issue could default or fail to fully repay the loan. Yes, and that's why we have the credit rating agencies who assess things like default risk and credit risk of bond issuers. They often publish credit ratings that not only help investors evaluate risk, but also help determine the interest rates on individual bonds as well. So overall, within the fixed income universe, there are many types of bonds that are spread out across the risk horizon, let's say, from investment grade bonds at the lower risk end of the scale to high yield bonds, emerging market bonds and asset backed securities at the higher end. And they've been around for a long time as well. I believe it's one of the oldest asset classes around. I've unearthed some interesting facts about the first ever government bond issued. So I'm going to have a test for you now, Nick. Can you guess who issued it? I can't. <laughs> well, it was issued by the UK government in 1693, and it was issued to fund the war against France. And talking of France, the Eurobond market, which is absolutely huge today, um, it actually came in a lot later than the UK bond market. Um, it didn't come through until 1963, when Autostrada issued a £15 million bond led by SG Warburg. Um, I've got some other interesting facts, don't go away yet. Um, it's a bit of a test again for you, Nick. What were gilt yields returning in 1975 when inflation reached 26%? You got no, you've, idea? you've got me again. <laughs> so gilt yields hit 19%. Can you believe that? Well, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. The modern bond market has really been evolving since the 1970s and supply has increased. Investors have learned there is potentially money to be made by buying and selling bonds in areas like the secondary market too. And we're talking of yields there. Let's go into a bit more detail about that. I mean, in simpler terms for our listeners, um, yield is the interest rate offered on a particular bond. That's right. And there are many different yield cal calculations and ways of expressing it from uh, the running yield, yield to maturity, annual yield, semi-annual yield and discount margin. The yield and price of a bond are inversely related. So when interest rates rise, bond prices tend to fall. And referencing this back to the current market, this is why at the moment there's a lot of talk about the death of the 35-year-old bond bull market, because global interest rates have started to rise and central banks have been reversing their QE programmes. Bond yields are quite low as a result, negative in some regions, Europe for example, and investors are having to search harder for that income. To an extent, yes, but the bond market is by far one of the largest securities markets in the world, and throughout history, investors have bought bonds for a number of reasons, including capital preservation, income and diversification. They can be used as a potential hedge against economic weakness or deflation too. So yield is just one reason to hold them. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, for many investors, they're quite popular simply for diversification purposes to ensure there is that mix of assets that can reduce low or negative returns in a portfolio. And then, of course, you know, one thing we haven't said so far today is that bonds can also be used as a potential hedging tool against an economic slowdown or deflation as well. They can. So let's say the economy really slows down and inflation falls. Bonds then become more attractive because it means bondholders can buy more goods and services with the same bond income. Although, as demand for this asset class increases, so will bond prices and returns. I always find it difficult to define the bond market and what it's been doing in recent years because every fixed income asset can look quite different. Well, different types of bonds have behaved differently. Ever since the 1990s, the emerging market 
debt asset class has developed and matured to include a wide variety of government and corporate bonds which are issued in major external currencies and local currencies. So overall, I think bonds today are quite simply a much better understood asset class. Investors understand the notion that not all bonds are equal and they don't all carry the same risk. So as we look to this year's potential end of a 35-year run in the bond bull market, investors now realise that fixed income doesn't necessarily mean you will lose money. In fact, it's all about how you are positioned. So if you're in an environment where yields are rising, then economic activity will be picking up and credit spreads are tightening too. Talking of positioning bonds in a portfolio, with credit spreads tightening and interest rates rising, as we've mentioned, the focus seems to be all about shorter duration credit assets in order to really benefit from those tightening spreads. Well, actually, duration is something that is pretty important today and something all investors should be aware of. Ten years ago, there was much less focus on duration, but if yields rise, as is the current consensus, and an investor has a very long duration, it will have a big impact on the performance of the fixed income fund. And duration, just to recap and explain, is it's that inverse relationship between price and yield. And duration basically aims to estimate how sensitive a particular bond's price is to interest rate movements. Yes, usually it's impacted by things like the size of the coupon payments and the bond's face value. So let's suppose that interest rates fall by 1%. This will cause yields on every bond in the market to fall by the same amount. So the price of a bond with a duration of five years will rise by 5%. On the other side, if interest rates were to rise by the same amount of 1%, the price of that bond would fall by 5%. It's important to remember that a rising rate environment doesn't affect all bonds equally, and it doesn't necessarily imply negative total returns for a lot of bonds. So if we look at credit and emerging market debt, um, these sectors actually perform better or, or can perform better or worse than government bonds during a rising rate period. Other assets such as floating rate notes and inflation-linked bonds, I mean, these are actually created so that they can help investors and protect investors from rising inflation. Oh, of course. And as we said earlier, not all bonds are equal. The higher interest rates we are seeing in, in the economies like the US and the UK are improving the ability of bonds to provide diversification, particularly in a broader portfolio via better performance in what we would call risk-off events. So unsurprisingly, the bonds that underperform in market environments like we see today tend to be the most equity-like in terms of risk, such as subordinated financial debt, credit default swap indices, and in some cases, high-yield credit. Looking at markets in 2018, we've had a bit of a volatile start to the year, or, or markets saw some volatile moves around February time, and as usual, we had that move towards safe haven assets and bonds. What, what are your thoughts on this continuing as the year progresses? Well, I guess if the stock market volatility continues, there might be a lot of flight to quality moves. Now, in terms of fixed income, inflationary pressures are likely to continue, although it's unlikely to be as quick or as high as in previous cycles. One of the most important aspects for bond investors today is the need to consider the implications and timing of further rate hikes in the US and the UK, um, as well as the potential end of asset purchases in the Eurozone. So it's important for investors to hold diversified risk coupled with cautious interest rate exposure. Yes, as is so often repeated, flexibility truly is the key, especially in bonds today, it seems. We're going to leave it there, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. We're now going to hear in more detail about how the diversification of bond portfolio works in action by speaking to Nicholas Trindad, Senior Credit Portfolio Manager at AXA Investment Managers. 
Nicholas reveals his thoughts on why markets are so poor at forecasting when interest rates are going to go up, and also where he believes the default cycle is at the moment. I think since the financial crisis that erupted 10 years ago, I think there's a, there's a consensus that we are in a lower for longer environment. And there's a consensus in the market that it, it will be some time before we get back to the yields level that we saw 10 years ago. And that is because, you know, central bank policies who have been basically doing quantitative easing and been, you know, uh, pulling yields down over the last couple of years. And do you see inflation or does the conventional wisdom see inflation staying low for longer as well? Well, I think right now there's a change actually in sentiment around inflation and growth. I mean, over the last couple of years, I mean, it was definitely the lower for longer camp, uh, you know, where, you know, inflation was really low, growth was really muted. But what we started to see uh, since the back end of last year is definitely a pickup in growth and inflation uh, globally. I mean, if you look at the U.S. first, I mean, we definitely start to see a pickup in growth. And we, we expect growth, GDP growth in the U.S. to be around 2.2% for 2017, up from 1.6% last year. So definitely a big pickup in growth, which should be driven by uh, basically tax cuts for corporates and households, which hopefully should boost spending. Uh, and that also would lead to higher inflation because right now the U.S. economy is quite close to full employment. That should lead to wage inflation and higher inflation. So definitely the picture is quite positive for, for the U.S. And this bull market in bonds has been going on for 30 years or so. H how much longer can it continue for? Well, I mean, from, from, from our perspective, from our perspective, I, I do think that we started to get to the end of this 30-year bull run. That is simply because we started, as I said earlier, and we started to see pickup in growth and inflation globally in the U.S., as we discussed, but also uh, in the Eurozone, which is very positive because we finally started to see car inflation increasing in the Eurozone, and we also started to see a nice pickup in growth in the Eurozone. If you look at the PMI numbers, they are a six-year high. So very clearly, you know, there's been a pickup there, and that I think is positive. And that's why I think with central banks also starting to tapering, constitutive easing. I think we're in an environment where we should see higher growth, higher inflation and higher yields. Is it the right sort of inflation? Is this wage growth led inflation or is this just prices going up? Well let's put it this way, in the US it will be the right you know, type of inflation because we expect wage inflation to go up. In the UK it may be the wrong type of inflation because of the fall in pound. What we've seen is actually imported inflation, which is the wrong type of inflation. Mm. That is the type of inflation that central bankers don't want to see. Now, you mentioned the, uh, this 30-year bond bull market could be coming to an end. If it comes to an end, does that mean you lose money in bonds or are there ways of preserving capital and indeed making money? It doesn't necessarily mean that you lose money in fixed income. It depends how you are positioned within fixed income. Because if you are in an environment where you know, yields rise, that means that actually you know, economic activity is picking up. Mm -hmm. And so that means that you know, credit spreads should tighten. Mm -hmm. So in this type of environment, where you would like to be exposed, you would like to be invested in you know, short duration credit assets. So short duration investment grade or short duration high yield uh, in order to benefit from the credit spread tightening but defend yourself against rising yields. But the yields on many bonds have got so low, you see, it seems very hard to see how people can make money off bonds. Why have they been buying them? 
Well, because they're being pushed by central banks, basically, to buy bonds and go lower and lower in the, cre in the credit spectrum. I mean, the issue you have, again, here in the UK, we're quite lucky because we don't really have to deal with negative yields. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the Eurozone, they have investors there had to, had to deal with you know, negative yields on a daily basis, where a big part of the investable universe is actually negatively yielding. But investors have been buying you know, really low-yielding assets because if you look at cash, cash is not giving you any returns. Mm -hmm. So if cash doesn't give you any returns, then you, need, you go basically to government bonds. If government bonds doesn't give you any returns, you go to investment grade credit, and then you go to high yield. And that's what a lot of investors have done over the recent years, is go from one asset class to the other to try to hunt for yield and still get some kind of returns on their investment portfolio. In the round, do you think there's going to be more investors coming out of equities into bonds or coming out of bonds into equities, g given this backdrop that you've described? I think what we would see is if, you know, Growth is picking up and inflation is picking up. We should see some investors reallocating to equities mm. because that is definitely uh, a positive environment for, for equities. But I think also what we'll see is investors looking more, you know, short duration fixed income mm -hmm. and credit short duration fixed income assets. And just a, a final background question around this. How much debt is there out there and is it sustainable? Well, let's put it this way. There are too much debt out there. Mm -hmm. And I think... It is sustainable as long as yields don't rise too quickly and too aggressively. And that is particularly the case for governments, governments and in particularly the case for the periphery within the Eurozone. Uh, you know, if we see you know, a gradual rise in, in yields, that should be okay for governments. But if you start seeing, seeing a big pickup in yields, some governments in the Eurozone, particularly in the periphery, it could become more difficult for them to refinance and that will definitely hit their, their budget. And how big a part of the universe these days are things like floating rate notes. We're hearing more and more about some of these alternative fixed income. How alternative is it? Yes, I mean, that, that's a very fair point. I mean, what, we, what we've seen over the last couple of years, again, is an increase in issuance in floating rate notes. I mean, usually what I would tend to say is that issuance comes into demand. Mm -hmm. And because there's an expectation from investors of higher yields, there's been more and more issuance of floating rate notes. Because obviously, in a, you know, in a rising environment, floating rate notes are very efficient because they have no duration. Mm. Uh, and so we've seen a lot of issuance of floaters in mm -hmm. dollars, but also in, in euros. And also more and more issuance of corporate floaters. Because mm -hmm. historically, floaters have been more focused on, on the financial side. Yeah. Uh, but we started to see more and more corporates issuing floaters. And do they have a typical length of life, a floating rate note? Do, do people want to sort of let you say, well, pay you whatever the interest rate is for the next 20 years? Do they try and keep these shorter duration? Usually floating rate notes will be issued up to five years. So they will tend to be fairly short duration. I mean, fairly short maturity. Let's put it this way, short maturity, yes. Now, if you are starting to look more internationally for your bond exposure, and you've been talking about companies certainly looking much more internationally to issue, what are some of the opportunities and threats that that throws up? Well, I think if, if you are you know, a UK or European investors, I think going global is quite attractive for three main reasons. Firstly, from a yield enhancement you know, mm -hmm. perspective, because going global gives you access to different markets with some higher yielding sectors. Um, secondly, when you go global, you, know, you can benefit from better diversification. Um, you know, there's some sectors that are underrepresented in sterling and in euros that you could potentially have access in dollars or in emerging markets. Mm -hmm. Uh, and lastly, also, you can benefit from cross-currency relative value opportunities. I mean, we just we've just discussed that some issuers issue globally in different currencies, and sometimes they don't necessarily trade in line. 
-hmm. And so a bond from one particular issuer can be cheaper in dollars versus euros or cheaper in sterling versus dollars, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's also the interest of going global, is that basically you can buy the issuer in its cheapest currency. You're talking about investing around the world, but obviously the, the economic cycle isn't in exactly the same place in every country in the world. What are the threats, what are the opportunities that throws up? Well, one thing that is true is that if you look at the world right now, I mean, we can see that, you know, growth and inflation, you know, are definitely picking up globally. But if you look at some pro banks, they are a different stage of our monetary policy uh, cycle. Because if you look at the Fed, for example, they are on the path of tightening very clearly. They already, you know, increased rates once this year, and we expect them to tighten two more times this year, one in June, one in September. Um, if you look uh, at the Eurozone and at the ECB, uh, we actually expect the, the European Central Bank to start tapering quantitative easing by, by the end of this year. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the UK and the Bank of England, uh, actually we expect a neutral bias. So we don't expect much on, on that front. But very clearly you can see that while um, the ECB is reducing easing, the Fed is already on the path of tightening. Mm. And that creates opportunities for global fund managers. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, those you know, technical aspects will have different impacts on their domestic market and create opportunities for us in terms of investments. Have you got a, a simple worked example of uh, perhaps a the type of company you'd want to buy in the States at the moment, but that you wouldn't want to buy in Europe? Well, let's put it this way. There are some companies that I can get access in the U.S. market that I wouldn't yeah. be able to get access in the European market. So a lot of energy companies... I would be able to get access to those companies in the US. I wouldn't be able to get access to those companies in Europe because they just don't issue in euros and sterling. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the cup of companies that I would be focusing in the US pocket of my global portfolio mm -hmm. because that's something I can't get access anywhere else. And because we expect a pickup in growth, you know, energy companies, energy names should benefit from that. What are the key things to be thinking about when it comes to interest rate risk? I think the most important thing to be wary of when, when you manage and when you look at your fixed income portfolio is where is your overall duration mm -hmm. and how is your duration split by currencies. So what is the contribution to duration of each of the different currencies in which you invest? Because, you know, we will, I mean, you may have different views and different duration views according to the currencies. So, for example, right now, you know, we expect yields to rise faster in the U.S. and in the Eurozone than in the U.K., you know, and so obviously, you know, you would be finding maybe slightly longer duration in the UK that you will be to be in the US or in the Eurozone, for example, because of that view. Uh, but overall, we would definitely have a bias towards short duration. So if a, a central bank is putting rates up or you're confident it's going to put rates up, you want to have less exposure to interest rates in that country. Is, is exactly. That's exactly. That, that's, that's the spirit of it. Mm. But also what you need to be wary of is also the kind of a, the contagion effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is really applicable for the UK because we expect the Fed to increase rates mm -hmm. two more times this year, so that should lead to higher yields. We also expect the ECB to taper quantitative easing, go down to zero at some point, which actually would bring, you know, would push yields higher. Yeah. And even in the UK, we expect the Bank of England to have a fairly neutral bias mm -hmm. and non not increase rates before at least two years. Because of what's happening in the US and the Eurozone, we still expect yields to go higher in the UK also. And that's why, I mean, the contagion effect also is very, very important. It's not only about central bank policies, it's also about the global environment and what impact it may have on your own domestic market. Mm -hmm. And that's why, from that perspective, you know, having a short duration bias in the UK, I still think it's something that is important because of what's going to happen globally and the impact it's going to have domestically in, on the UK.
Historically, are the bond markets any good at working out when central banks are going to raise or cut rates? Very poor. Mm. <laughs> Historically, markets have been very poor at forecasting uh, when interest rates are going to go up, and they got it wrong for quite a long time with the US and with the Fed, because for a long time, you know, the market thought that the Fed would increase rates, and it kept on not happening or not happening until mm -hmm. it actually happened. Uh, but I think here the case for the Fed increasing rates is much stronger than what it has been for a very, very long time. Mm. Um, and that's why we're quite confident on that view. And we're quite confident that you know, the Fed should you know, increase rates two more times this year. So what would you say to investors who said, well, as an industry, you've been really bad at predicting when I should take interest rate risk. So why should I trust you now that you're telling me not to? Well, the first point that's the one I already made is that from an economic perspective, mm. you know, I think the mandate for, for the Fed to increase rates is very strong, and that's why we expect the Fed to increase wrong, uh, rates. If you look at the ECB and the Eurozone, again, because of car inflation <laughs> is picking up, because growth is picking up, we definitely expect tapering, which will lead to higher yields. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing to take into account is also the cost of going short duration. Mm. Okay? And here, if you look at the cost of going short duration, it's quite low by historical standards, because yield curves and credit curves are quite flat. And so the cost of going shorter is much lower than what it would have been maybe five or ten years ago. When you say that, do you mean that you would make less money than if you had longer duration, or you would actually lose money if you had? What I'm saying is that the cost of going shorter duration mm -hmm. is lower than what it would have been five or yeah. ten years ago. So basically, the loss in yield mm -hmm. is lower now than what it would have been five or ten years ago if you basically um, shorten the maturities of your portfolio and shorten the duration. But if the bond markets uh, have got it right this time and they see rates going up, won't that have been priced into longer duration paper anyway? What's happening to that? I think what's happening is about the term rate. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some discussion about how high the term rate is going to be because, you know, we are in a hiking cycle where we started at a very, very low point. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, now there's some discussion in the market as to what's going to be the final term rate. What you mean, the, 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 the height to which US exactly. interest rates get to? Exactly, exactly. And here there's still some debates in the market. But very clearly, so that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is also the, um, the pace of increase in interest rates. Right now, the market, and we are expecting two increases in interest rates for 2017. Mm -hmm. But if, for whatever reason, growth is stronger than what we're expecting in the US, or inflation is you know, um, going higher, and yeah. uh, increasing at a faster pace than what the market is pricing in, but that could push the Fed to increase rates at a much faster pace. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, then what you would see is a big repricing in government bond markets globally. And what's the sort of consensus view on what the height of the US interest rate cycle is likely to be and when it's likely to get there? Well, I mean, right now, the expectation, the consensus will be around 3, 3.5%. Mm -hmm. What, by sort of 2020 or something? What, what, what um, in terms of time horizon, yes, yeah. it will be about by 2020. So within the next three years, basically, we'll see this, this increase in interest rates to hit about 3%. But in the great scheme of things, that's a fairly gentle rise over yes, time. Yes, exactly. It? Exactly. Yeah. That, that's the view. It's a gently rise over time because I think the, the Fed still wants to err on the cautious side. And we're talking about the rise of inflation, but not so long ago, the big fear was about deflation. Uh, has that all gone now? Are we confident this is an, a world I think this, I think it's, it's fairly gone now. I think, you know, as you know, your markets tends to go with themes. And yes. very clearly, over the last couple of years, the big theme was deflation and the Japanization of you know, world economies. Mm. But I think now it's really moved towards more reflation theme. And that is partly due to the Trump presidency.
Because mm. very clearly the Trump agenda is very pro-growth, pro-inflation. And that's why, I mean, right now, you know, there's a this strong reflation thing that is really driving markets. Does that worry you slightly, this sort of belief that one man can make that much of a change anywhere in the world? Uh, I mean, not, not least because some of the things he said he's going to do is have come up a little bit short when they've gone through the, the, the legal system, for example. Yes, I, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. And, and we already seen that his ability to implement all of his policies is fairly limited. He's mm. already fell on some of the policies that he wanted to implement. Uh, but we still expect some tax, tax cuts for households, for corporates, which should definitely help you know, and, and boost mm. spending in the US. So that's the first thing. And if you look also in the Eurozone, we really started to see, you know, strong, you know, activity in the Eurozone. And, you know, if you look at the PMIs, they are six year high. So there's definitely green shoots of, of growth in the Eurozone, which is something that is very positive that we haven't seen for, for quite a long time. And we do expect that to translate into positive and healthy growth for the Eurozone. What do investors need to think about to make sure that their bond portfolios are fit for purpose for, say, the next five years? I think that the first step is to look at your duration. Mm -hmm. Check that you are happy with the duration of your portfolio, that it reflects the views that you have. If you share our views that we're going to see higher growth and higher inflation, then you, wanna have, you may want to have a short duration bias on your fixed income portfolio. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing is to you know, look at global opportunities. If you are just investing in sterling, for example, is there a case to go global, not only from a regional perspective, but also from a credit perspective? Yeah. Uh, should, you look, should you look at high yield? Should you look at emerging markets? And should you look at other investment grade markets? So that would be the second thing to look at. And then if you decide to go global, do you want to take currency risk or not? Mm -hmm. In our case, we don't take currency risk because that will be the main driver of performance. Mm -hmm. But that's something also that you need, you need to understand and you need to be happy with. We have to leave it there. Nicholas Trindade, thank you. Thank you very much.